that we're going to be dealing with today and what this looks like. To behold his love and his return. Um, I asked this last week, I'm going to ask it again today. Do you believe that Jesus loves you today? All right, okay. <laughs> I'm really confident out there. Um, let's try it again. Do you believe that Jesus loves you? Okay, all right, there we go. That's a little bit better. At least you faked it for me. I appreciate it. Uh, now let me ask you this. Do you believe that Christ is coming again? Okay, good. You're mu- much more certain of that. I want you to know he does love you and he is coming again. And uh, we should be certain of both of those things. And I believe that uh, here, as John is writing, as we've been talking about in this letter, to refute these false teachers, to give believers assurance, which believers should have assurance. Uh, it is a part of salvation to not just be saved and to be wandering through life and going, well, I, I'm pretty sure I'm saved because of X, Y, and Z. It's going, I know I'm saved and I have assurance of my salvation, not because of what I've done or who I am, but because of who Jesus is and what he has done. And so now John brings it to this point here in chapter 3 as he's beginning a section that's going to be dealing with what real love looks like in the Christian life, what true obedience looks like. Uh, And so he begins here by saying, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are, are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. Let's look, first of all, at the phrase behold and what this uh, verse is dealing with. To behold means to to look at, to see, uh, to pay attention to, to stop, to consider, and to perceive. It it is much like the phrase you might hear to stop and smell the roses, right? It's to, to cause you not just to, oh, hey, look at that, those are some roses. It's to cause you to actually pause and to look and go, those are roses, they're red. Let me smell them, right? Don't touch the, the, you know, the thorns and all that stuff, right? You, you think you take more time to actually slow down and appreciate what is, what is there. And so to behold, it is to, much like uh, when Spurgeon was uh, saved, that he tells of the night of his conversion, that the pastor that night, or rather the one who was speaking, got up and preached a message to look to Christ and live. And so we often forget that this is a theme throughout the Bible, to behold, to, to look, to gaze upon And when we open up our Bibles, it's not just to flippantly open and to kind of read the words, but we should behold not just the black and white page here that we've got, but really to behold the truth of what God is saying, what he has for us, uh, what the truth of God's word is. And so this is a command as well. He doesn't say, hey, would you consider looking? Would you consider paying attention? Right? That, could you imagine a pastor getting up and saying, hey, I'd like for you to maybe listen today if you want to, but if you don't, it's okay. You know, you're here to behold, look, pay attention to. Uh, this is what he's about to say shows it is very important. I have here, we do a lot of bellowing, but not much beholding. We talk a lot about things. We talk a lot about our love for the Lord or about how we should live our life. And we talk a lot, but we bellow a lot we don't often look at christ and just see all of who he is and appreciate who he is we spend so much time dealing and and talking about you know well i'm supposed to read my bible and pray and do this 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 that we forget to just stop and go well it's not about what i'm supposed to do and it's rather for me just to look back to christ and the whole point of what john is writing is to not give him something new but as he said time and time again 
that I'm giving you something that you've heard from the beginning. He is preaching Christ to them. Why? Because what gives us his assurance of our salvation? Christ, who has saved us? Christ, who keeps us saved? Christ, who will bring us to glorification? Christ, who is your Christian life about? Not you, but Christ. And so everything points back to him who has loved us, who has saved us, and who is coming again for us. The love of God is certainly something to behold. We are often guilty of talking about the love of God in either one of two ways. In a soft and squishy way where, you know, God is love, which he is, the Bible clearly says it. But we get in a soft and squishy way of going, you know, because he's love, then he doesn't ma- it doesn't matter what you do or how you live. Or he, you know, he'll understand your heart. Well, your heart's desperately wicked, right? It's vile. It's disgusting before him. It's unholy. It's unrighteous. So his love doesn't go, eh, well, you know, they tried real hard. They're sincere. There's a balance here. But we can't go on the other side and go, well, God is love, but he's real mad about it, right? He's, he's, he loves people, but he's just so angry all the time. And th- there is a balance of understanding that certainly God is love, but he is angry with the wicked. But in his love for the wicked, he has sent his son to die for the wicked, to raise to life for the wicked so that they would be justified by putting their trust in him. If there's anything that you and I can cling to and hold on to in our Christian walk to give us that continual peace and assurance of our salvation and our hope of his return, it is the love of God. Love of God is something that we should behold. Because look at this phrase. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. Notice he does not say, behold how good you love God, or how much you love God, or how well you love God. But he says, rather look at the love that the Father hath bestowed upon us. To bestow it, it is that of a gifting. The love of God on a sinner is not just love, but it's an act of his grace. All that God is and all that God does is a gift and an act of grace. In this life, in your life, every breath in your lungs, every time your heart beats, and praise the Lord, Rick knows about that now, right? You you feel and experience the grace of God. And so it is grace that shows us the manner of love, the way in which God has demonstrated his love uh, toward us. While we were yet sinners, Christ would die for us. Or the way in which we see his love where he comes by us like a shepherd to correct us or to draw us back or to heal us or to bring us the, the nourishment that we need, as well as the same one who calls us his friend, the same one who says that we're joint heirs with Christ, that we have an eternal home with him and that we're forgiven, that gives us all these positional things because he has bestowed his love upon us. We are truly the idea of being absolutely lavished, overwhelmed with love. You ever, maybe you haven't, I don't know, but it's the idea of like if you were at your birthday party and it was a surprise party, you show up and bam, surprise, and all of your friends, all of your family's there, and you weren't expecting it, and then guess what? All that they do is just dote all this love and, and cards and gift cards and money and cake and prizes and presents and and just enjoying your company and celebrating all that you are and and, hey you did it you survived another year we love you so much right you would be overwhelmed right if you got over the initial shock of you know the surprise factor but truly it is a surprise that God would love the unlovable but that's who he is and on top of that he doesn't just say well you know I love you but his love is such a a self-sacrificial love that we can't even fully grasp or understand the depth or the riches of the love of God. We see a couple of truths here that I want to give to you. 
that the love of God, first of all, is undeserved. If we begin to think that we deserve God's love, then we don't know God, we don't know love, and we certainly don't know who we are as man. It is undeserved. We, we have a love that is bestowed upon us that we did not earn. God does not love you because there's anything good in you. Rather, he loves you because that's who he is. And so we have to get back to understanding that God does what God does, not in response to man, but rather in response to his own divine character and decrees. He does what he does because he is who he is. Therefore, he loves you not because you've earned it, deserved it, worked for it, or been sincere enough, but rather because that's all of who he is. Second, the love of God is unending. There is nothing that you can do to make God love you more, nor love you less. God loves you the same way that he has before the foundations of the world, the same way that he will when we're in his presence around the throne, that God loves you. And it is unending because the love of God towards man, towards his redeemed, has been the same since before the foundations of the world. If you don't believe me, read the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, it speaks of the beautiful picture of God's love towards man who he knew would despise and reject his son, who he knew would have one rule in the garden and break that one rule, who he knew would be rebellious in their nature and would constantly fight him and constantly go to idolatry and immorality and all these things, and yet he still from before they are ever created, before the world has gone out into the expanse and being held up by his word and power, he has already set his love upon us. And it is unending. The love of God as well is undoing. It is undoing in the sense that it should make us a little bit undone knowing that God loves you. You might not have many people in your friends or family list that you feel this sort of Oh, I'm just so loved all the time. And there's days that we don't feel that way, but feeling in our emotions is not necessarily reality. As a matter of fact, what happens to us is we take our emotions and our feelings and we make that reality when it's not. There are emotions and feelings which gets tossed about like the waves of the sea or, or the wind in the skies. But what is true is that the love of God does undo us to know that He loves me despite me, despite who I am. It should undo us in the sense that when I go and seek sin or seek emotions or I seek uh, my flesh, that because God loves me, I should not do these things, but in turn, I should love him back. Not because I have this natural tendency to love God, but rather because it is his natural uh, tendency to, to love me and to demonstrate his love to me. And as well, fourthly, the love of God is unexplainable. I could go on and on, but truly the phrase is, it's incomprehensible, it's unexplainable, it's, I can't fully put it into words. We can't. Now, you and I, we could go around the room today and talk all about how God has shown me his love or his kindness towards me, couldn't we? Absolutely could. And we should. We should do those things. We should share the love of God in our life with, with one another. But can we fully explain or wrap our brains around it? I can't. If you can, we'll, we'll trade spots right this morning, right? I can hop down there. I'd love to, right? You think that it's unexplainable though, to, to truly understand the depths and the heights of all of who God is, let alone just this one single attribute of God being love and loving us, especially because we know how we are. We know who we are. And so it is unexplainable that God would love us the way that he does. Lastly, the love of God is unearthly. It does not come 
from anything that you and I can try to paint pictures of the love of God using illustrations in this world around us. We can talk about the way a, a parent might love and sacrifice for a child or, or uh, in marriage, which is supposed to be a picture of our relationship with God, how we sacrifice for one another. And, but yet every picture that you and I put together that is dealing with anything that we can see or, or hear or, or taste, touch, smell, anything like that, anything that we can have in this physical world, it does not add up or match up. The love of God truly is unearthly, the way in which He loves us. The phrase, the expression, how great, translates, which meant originally of what country. It is as if the Father's love is so unearthly, so foreign to this world, that John wonders from what country it may come. It would be if you put yourself back in the shoes of John in these days, where everything that they get is not found at Walmart, but or Dollar General, they have to travel or it has to get uh, you know, come into a port city or travel by camel, horseback, donkey, I mean, something, right? It, and it takes a while for everything to get there. They've only seen pretty much what they know in their own little small region. Many of them would not travel uh, throughout the world or see so many, so many things. And so when something new comes in, they go, oh, that's new. Uh, tell me about this. I must have this. I must acquire this. Where did it come from? How did you get it? How expensive is it? What is it used for? All these questions. And so, when we look at the love of God, it is this sort of idea of how it, it is foreign to us. And that's why for us, because we don't understand all of who God is and all of his love, especially in our sinful nature or our lost condition, that's why we can't fathom or be able to have a natural tendency to love God back. There is this natural divide that happens because of our sinfulness. And this is why John points back and says, Behold, look, ponder on, think about what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. And he says that we should be called the sons of God, that we should be called his children. First of all, there is privilege in this because not all people are God's children. This is something that is unfortunately preached and taught all over the place because it certainly sounds nice, doesn't it? Right? It sounds good singing kumbaya around a campfire and we're all God's children, but it does not work that way. And it's not because of background or because of skin color or economic condition, but it is a spiritual truth and a spiritual condition because when you and I are born, we're born dead in sins and trespasses. We're born, according to the Scripture, children of the devil. He's our father, if you will. right? We're, we're of the seed of the devil, seed of the serpent. We're, we're unfaithful. We're unbelieving. We are uh, unrighteous in everything that we do and all that we are. And so it is a privilege to be called his child. Why? Because he's not just God, and he's certainly not just the man upstairs that we often hear people refer to him as. He is the God of heaven. He is the one true God. He is the King of kings. He is the one who is all-knowing and, and all-powerful and all-present. He is the one who has bestowed this love upon this world that did not deserve it or earn it. He is the one who created the heavens and the earth, everything that is visible or invisible. And yet he knows you individually and personally and calls you his child the one forgotten doctrine that we often neglect so much and, and i wish that we would talk more about it is that of adoption when, when we often see like a sappy video on facebook about you know someone getting adopted and it's very emotional because we see that they've gone from no family to a family that loves and cares for them properly and and, and certainly because in this world it's not perfectly but they are experiencing love what it's like to have a a mom and a dad that love and care for them, right? But we forget that we are adopted by 
God. It is literally at our justification, a legal transaction where we go from being uh, children of the devil, uh, we uh, go only after the flesh, go only after our sinfulness, and then we're adopted into his family. We're literally born again into his family. To know that God is not just your God, but he is our father. And because of Christ the Son, we can go directly to him in prayer, in thanksgiving, in praise, just to abide in his word and to, to talk with him and to have him speak to us through his word and through the indwelling Holy Spirit. It's a privilege to know him. And only those who are born again can know this privilege because only those who are born again, only those who have repented and trusted Christ alone, only those are the ones who have been adopted to have that privilege of being able to say, Father God, or Heavenly Father, or as the Scripture, Abba Father. Secondly, there is a position in this, being called His children. It is the idea that legally, as an adoption would take place, even today, that you now belong to to them. You're, You're part of the family. As should be. That's what adoption is. And it's a beautiful picture because spiritually, now we are His and He is ours. We're part of the family and there's no undoing these papers. There's no undoing your salvation. There's no going back and God says, you know what? This kid I adopted sure is, he's just not working out. I'm going to send him back. You know, I'm just going to rip up the adoption papers and throw away. And, you know, maybe if he does better again, it doesn't work that way. There's some who treat their animals that way. They'll adopt them from the shelter or or SPCA and and then they'll they'll take them back because they don't want them. See, God doesn't do this, does he? How many times, how many of you were saved before you were 20 years old? All right. Now, how many of you have been saved longer than 20 years? Good bit of you. All right. Now, let me ask you this. Have you sinned more in the time that you were saved or, <laughs> or my senior? That ain't, we got Joe's answer, right? <laughs> or when you were lost? Have you sinned just as much, maybe you think? Possibly more? If you've been saved a long time, you've sinned. If you've been saved 40 years and you were unsaved for 20 years, guess what? You've sinned more probably in that time. Why? You've got longer time to do it, even being saved. Has God ever stopped and said, you know what? All these years they've been saved, but they just, they keep on messing up. They keep on making mistakes. They're not going to be mine anymore. Not once. Not one time. That is the love of God that has been bestowed on us, this privilege. Uh, one commentator writes, looked at from a human point of view, those who receive Christ in the sense of believing in him are children of God. Looked at from the divine point of view, his children are those who are born of God, or as Jesus puts it in John 3, 8, those who are born of the Spirit. We have assurance because of his love towards us that we are his children, that we are called the sons. To be called is to be declared that we are not just justified before him, but now we are adopted by him. There we belong to him. And he says, therefore, therefore the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. The world does not know us or the things about church or about Christ or, or about the way in which we live our lives or desire to live our lives because they don't know God. The, the phrase to know is one of not just a, a head knowledge, but it is to know and to accept, to, to believe. And so the same way that you and I would say about someone who does not know Christ, what we are saying is that they know who Jesus is. They've probably even read the Bible, or they might have gone to church, or they might even be in church now. But to know Christ is to 
know in our head, believe in our heart, which will lead then to uh, an action with our hands on the outward. And so there are many who are without Christ who do not know him. They know about him. They know his name. They might even be able to tell you that he died on the cross or that Easter he, you know, rose from the dead or, or that Christmas he, you know, was born or whatever it might be. But yet they still don't know him. He says, therefore, the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. It reminds us of what John had dealt with and talked about in John chapter one, that he came into his own and his own received him not. That is the idea of knowing. They saw him. They knew Jesus, but they said, oh, it's Jesus. That's, that's Joseph and Mary's kid. He's going to be a carpenter one day. Or, you know, he, he, is there anything good that can come out of, out of where he's from? Oh, probably not, right? Look, look at his parents. Look at where he's from. They did not know him. You see the, see the difference there? And so the world cannot understand the spiritual, nor will they. They can't. They must be born again to understand the spiritual, and nor will they accept you and I. If we are accepted by the world in the sense of the way that they view acceptance, then we're probably not living as we should. That doesn't mean that you don't mess up or, or, or this too. It does not mean that you should not have lost friends. If anything, I would condemn myself and our churches for not having enough lost friends. We could probably say that we've got our friends and family for the most part or the people that we hang out with are only saved people. If we, and myself included, can't name five plus lost people that we know and associate with, then we are probably not living for the gospel as much as we think we are. And so that's on us. We want our friends to come to church so that they can assimilate to church, not be born again and, and trust Christ. And, and we want them to, you know, hey, if you just act right, we can hang out more or, you know, we I just love it if you did like what we do. But here's the thing. Lost people don't know that they're lost. They're just lost. And lost people do what lost people do. The issue today, though, on the other side, is that we either try too hard to be accepted of the world that we lose the gospel, or we try so hard to be away from the world that we don't go into the world with the gospel. We are guilty, certainly, of one or the other, oftentimes. Then he continues on here in this. He says, Beloved, He's addressed and dealt with the fact that we're loved, we're adopted, we know God. And he says, beloved, now are we the sons of God? He reiterates, in case you didn't get it in verse 1, he says, now we are the sons of God. That is current. Because of God's love, we are now his. According to Romans 8, 16, the spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. In that same chapter, we've already been told in Romans 8, that there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, and that there is no separation to those who are in Christ Jesus. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. That means your discouragement or depression, your emotions, your family, your circumstances, your, uh, you know, your financial situation, whatever it is, if you are in Christ, there is nothing that can separate you from Him or His love. That's something to chew on. That's something to bring us encouragement. So we know now that we are His but we are still under a mystery of the future with him. What will it be like? What will our glorification be like? He goes on to say, And it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when we shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. There is much mystery about heaven, about eternity. If I get any questions, normally they are dealing with who's going to be there, can they see me? Can I see them? Uh, what's it going to be like? What's my glorified body like? What's it like before that happens? Um, 
where uh, all the details about it. Are we going to know Noah and Abraham? Are we going to know great, 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 great grandma that we never knew as a kid? Uh, all these different things. You want to know the answer to most of those right now? I don't know. <laughs> you don't either. As a matter of fact, what God has given us is what God has given us. And we are zealous for wanting to know the Bible. And I absolutely love Bible questions. I absolutely love studying the Bible. However, no matter how much we study, there are still yet some things that we won't know and that we can't know. And I love that about the Bible. I would say to those who say that they, they know more than everybody else, that they are probably more of a Gnostic than they are a Christian. They think they have this sort of edge on everybody else. If you're the only one that holds your particular view on something in Scripture, I hate to break it to you, but you're probably wrong. Now, you might be right. You might tell all the rest of us, Nana, Nana, Boo Boo, when we get to heaven. I don't know. I don't think it'll matter then anyways. But the point of the matter is this, that what we do know is that we're sons of God and that he shall appear and that when he does, we shall be like him and we shall see him as he is. Now, I want to answer a few of these things that we do know. David Guzik writes, though our present standing is plain, our future destiny is clouded. We don't know in the kind of detail we should like to know that we will become in the world beyond. In this, this sense, we can't even imagine what we will be like in glory. However, let me ask you this. Can you know that you will go to heaven? Absolutely. He spent the first two chapters dealing with, and we know, and we know, and we know. He's going to continue going, and we know. To have this assurance, I know that if I died right now, that I would go to heaven. But what I don't know is what all that's going to look like. All the beauty that we shall behold. If I will actually uh, stand or run around and get to walk. If I'll have on clothes. If I'll have on the same tie. Or, 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 or what it will be like. And I love that. I absolutely love the fact that there is a mystery of the fact that it shows if there was no mystery and we could know all that there is to know about God and all that there is to know about our future, that would certainly mean that we're just like God and that we are gods ourselves and we're not. God is certainly worth serving and worshiping because He alone is God. His ways are not our ways. And He knows all things and we don't. Therefore, we should turn to Him. And we should trust in Him. What I find is that everybody wants to know the things that God has not given us to know in detail. Let us know and believe that He has given what He has given and anticipate the certain future with Him. We can anticipate the certain future because it is certain. However, we should not be so dogmatic about things of what your glorified body will be like, what kind of food will be there, or if there will be food, or what kind of animals, or this, that, and the other. And we get so caught up in trying to answer or hold these dogmas about things that aren't in Scripture or that don't even matter compared to the rest of the stuff in Scripture that just aren't revealed, and, and we miss out on the rest of heaven. We want everything else to know, but here's what you do need to know. If you're in Christ, you will be there. And guess what? He will be there. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. If there's anything that you need to know about your assurance or about heaven, it is that Christ is there. And if you're in Christ, you will be there. And that's all that will matter. What we do know is that there will be myriads of myriads of, of believers and, and angels around the throne and, and singing and praising God. And those are some things that we do know. But yet there's still mystery. But furthermore, we see a couple of things, though, that I do want to, to look at in this phrase. He says, but 
we do know that when he shall appear, so first we do know that he will appear. When he shall means he shall. He's going to appear. This is dealing with, excuse me, the second coming where he does return. We, we have all this great consummation that's coming to a close, if you will. That we then are told that we shall be like him. We shall see him as he is. The phrase, we shall see him as he is, that is, not seeing him as he was in the days of his earthly ministry, nor seeing him with the eyes of faith, but seeing him as he now is in heavenly glory, and the sight of him, the author says, will be enough to make us pure like him. We often wonder about the judgment, what the judgment seat's going to be like, what our purification or glorification is, is like in an instant. Is it going to take a while to go through our, our, our list of grievances against God, whatever it might be? I do know this, that the Bible describes just over a couple of pages in your Bible in Revelation chapter 1 about what Jesus looks like. That his head and his hairs were white like wool and as white as snow and his eyes were as a flame of fire. The idea of his holiness, his purity, his perfection. And I very much believe that with one look into the eyes that are as a flame of fire that our purification process gets done real quick. Why is that? Because fire purifies, doesn't it? It's fire that brings out these things and, and, and brings about a, a purification process. And I believe in just an instant, in just a moment, it will happen. Nevertheless, though, it is enough for us to know that on the last day, and through eternity, we shall both be with Christ and be like Christ. For the fuller revelation of what we are going to be, we are content to wait. And boy, that's tough for us, isn't it? and impatient people. We're longing for heaven, but yet we must wait to get there. We are longing to know what it will be like, but we must wait to see. Right now, we see it by faith, don't we? Right now, we wait by faith. Right now, we press on by faith. That's why here, we need faith. And that's why in heaven, in in our glorified state, our faith shall be made sight. We won't need to be going... I'm just going to trust him because he's right there. We'll behold him and we shall see him and he shall see us. But this does lead to this, though, that the consummation will be our confirmation. At the end of all things and when we meet the Lord, there's where everything will be confirmed. I don't think the questions that you and I have now will even be answered later or nor will we even care. But everything that we've ever thought or wondered It's going to be confirmed in an instant. The moment we see him. Then this leads to this, and this is how we'll we'll end this morning. It says in verse 3, And every man that hath this hope, which we should. The idea of hope is not a, I'm hoping, it's a confidence, a faithful confidence. In him purifieth himself even as he is pure. So you and I are called to be purified, not just in eternity, but even now. One thing that the Puritans had that we don't is obviously the fact that they lived in a time where they didn't have as many distractions as we do. They're certainly known for their purity and their piety. But Christians and true believers always have been known as that. It's up until recent modern history that, well, you know, we've gotten by with some things, if you will. But we are called to purify ourselves, to put our flesh to death. John Stott writes, purity, or hagnia, is primarily freedom from moral stain, and so that element in holy character which is wrought out by discipline of temptation. 
John has already emphasized that since Christ is righteous, we must practice righteousness if we do not want to be ashamed at his coming. Just dealt with that in chapter 2, verse 28 29. We dealt with that last week. Similarly, since he is pure, and when we see him, we will be like him in his purity, we must ensure that the process of purification is begun now and purify ourselves. True, only the blood of Christ can cleanse us from the stain and guilt of sin, chapter 1, verse 7. But we have a part to play in purifying ourselves from its power. If you live in the flesh and you don't walk in the Spirit and have the fruit of the Spirit, then you will not have the peace, joy, love, and comfort and all these things and assurance that we're supposed to have. The unassured believer very well may be a believer, but as a believer who has left this purification process, who has settled for less, who has bought into a lie of works and demands and has gone back to the law, and has left grace, which is the gift of God, to bring us out of it and to bring us to Christ. If you believe that you are in Christ and that He is coming again, then your life should reflect it. As we said earlier, and we confirmed, do you believe that Jesus loves you? Yes. Do you believe that Jesus is coming again? Yes. Therefore, live like Jesus loves you. Therefore, live like Jesus is coming back. Coming again. If we live in our Christian walk knowing and trusting that Jesus loves me, then that brings assurance and joy and peace and allows me to keep running this race of which we're called to run. And then as well, on the other side of that, if I truly believe and live my life that He is returning and could at any moment, then it will change and bring me to a place where I seek to be pure before Him. Why? So that those that abide in Him when He shall appear, according to chapter 2, verse 28, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before Him. We should have confidence. Confident Christians who have confidence in Christ alone. As we purify ourselves by abiding in Him, we will have hope, confidence, and the assurance of our salvation, sanctification, and our future glorification. One day every wrong will be made right, and one day, one day, we will be perfectly and completely pure. Not because we've done anything, but because the moment that we see Jesus, boom, purified and glorified forever. And so shall we ever be with our Lord, who has loved us with a lavish love, who has bestowed it upon us, so that we will know that we are His and He is ours. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for this time. We thank You for Your Word that we can study. I pray, God, that we would... Rest in that assurance and confidence of your love towards your people and as well the fact that you're coming again and that one day we will be before you and be like you. Lord, help us to purify our hearts. And Lord, now that we would purify our hearts before this worship service, that we might be able and prepared to sing with right hearts and motives before you, that we would not care about anything else except for worshiping you today. God, I pray now that you would prepare us and, and uh, Lord, that you would have your will and your way in this service today. We love you and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, y'all, let's take a pause for the calls. And any guys that want to come pray, we got room open right here.